Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Greetings, Tavarishi, and welcome to the Eastern Border. We are very pleased to bring you this episode so soon after the last one. Having two work-free days in a row, which doesn't happen often to me, really improves my productivity. Also, as you have noticed, we have gained some friends lately, and this is all due to the awesome people on the Facebook's History Podcasts group. So, if you're not familiar with them and are interested in more history podcasts, information about what's awesome and new in podcasting, and some historical jokes, sometimes a lot of historical jokes, please do check the group out. They're awesome. Also, it's confirmed now. We really can't get this show on iTunes. So, please, if you could, find us on Stitcher and give us some good reviews there. And now, on to the show. Do you remember your first cheeseburger? The one in McDonald's. Because I do, and it plays nicely into today's story. You see, first McDonald's opened in my country in 1994. I was five at the time. It was a huge deal. 
It opened in the very central square of our capital, Riga, right across the street from our Monument of Freedom. It's like having a McDonald's in the base of the Statue of Liberty or an Eiffel Tower, really. During the day when it opened, there was a huge line, waiting to enter the restaurant, and at the same time, a protest action against Americanization right across the street. It got a lot of media attention as well. Media covered it, politicians commented on it, saying that this represents a lot to our country, showing that we're becoming truly capitalistic. Everyone wants the burger. But you know what? Getting one was very expensive at the time. But the people didn't care that much, they just wanted a bite of America. See, after the collapse of the socialist economical system, the average salary in Latvia was just about 30 to 40 lats, and the cheeseburger cost about 50 centims. 100 centims make a lat, just to make some sense. In a while, salaries over here went up, but McDonald's prices stayed about the same, so common people could actually eat there. By the way, something like this happened this year again, when we got our first KFC. But there were huge lines again, and people were buying buckets of nuggets, as if they hadn't tried fried chicken before. Made me feel strange, to be honest. The chicken is quite nice, but the place looks a bit cheap and dirty, I think. But back to the story anyway. My first cheeseburger came in 1998, when I was in the second grade, and we had a field trip to some museum in Old Riga, after which we had some free time. Obviously, we all went to McDonald's. That was the exotic, strange, and cool thing to do at the time. I spent my whole weekly allowance there, and got a cheeseburger, small fries, and a Coke. That was also the first time I tried Coca-Cola. Nowadays, our McDonald's restaurants look very adult-oriented and serious, much like other cafes. You won't find that clown guy anywhere, and we don't have kids' corners anymore. But back then, it was all Ronald McDonald and kids-oriented marketing everywhere with all their bright colors and everything. We were so hooked. The expectations of what was to come were super high. We just had to have a burger. It tasted really weird at first. I didn't understand what the fuss was about. But it was cool to eat at McDonald's, because it was western and awesome. So all of us pretended that it was the most awesome thing to ever happen to us. Although it tasted weird and cost us a ton of money at the time. But we took part in a strange western culture, and it felt like we were part of that other world for a while. And that is similar to how the whole USSR felt during the Moscow Olympics in 1980. Except, in that case, you would have to add in a drunken foreign man, who this time is not an American, stumbling in the McDonald's where we're eating, asking the cashier whether he could use the bathroom and do the sell vodka. And after receiving the answer, which would be positive, the drunken man would puke all over your food. And then some other people, also drunk, who work at the nice police office, would come in and confiscate the parts of the food which don't have puke on them and drive you exactly 101 kilometers away, so that you wouldn't bother the nice man who's just visiting your country. Yeah, sounds much more like it. Because that's about how it went down in Moscow. Ain't no party like the Communist Party, indeed. But, all in all, we really like the Olympics. Now, what these games are most known for in the Western world is, of course, the boycott. In 20th of January 1980, the president of the USA, Jimmy Carter, 
declared an ultimatum that the U.S. would boycott the 1980 Olympics in Moscow if the USSR wouldn't withdraw its military from Afghanistan in one month. Now, as you know from the previous episode, that didn't really happen as the U.S. had planned, so Carter called other Western countries to do the same, to join in the boycott, and many of them later did. Some sources suggest that the Carter's decision was mostly a political one, as Carter had been attacked on being way too liberal with his dealings with the USSR, and the boycott was supposed to boost his popularity and guarantee extra votes in the upcoming elections. Now, Carter made this announcement right before the start of the Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, which didn't leave the USSR enough time for proper response. The Soviet delegation had just to go to the USA and pretend that nothing had happened. This, however, led to their own counter-boycott of the 1984 Olympics, which I will take a look at in a future episode, perhaps. The Soviets understood that the lack of many Western countries, and also China, relationships with which had worsened a lot over the past few years, would make the Moscow Olympics a second-rate sporting event. But the USSR managed to get the Spaniard Juan Antonio Samaranch in their side which then was elected the president of the International Olympic Committee just three days before the Olympics started. Samaranch managed to convince Italy, Spain, France, and some other Western countries to send their athletes to the Soviet Games, albeit with some conditions. Italy, France, Netherlands, Belgium, Switzerland, Luxembourg, and San Marino, while participating in the Games, didn't participate in the opening ceremony. Great Britain and Ireland sent one representative each to the opening ceremony, but did so under the Olympic flag rather than their national flags. However, this was only a token gesture of showing some support to the boycott, as Great Britain allowed any of their athletes that wanted to do so to participate in the Games. Ireland used the Olympic flag during the competitions rather than their own. Same was done by Australia, Andorra, Denmark, and Puerto Rico, as using their own national flag would denote that their governments fully accepted the participation of the Olympic committees of these countries. Spain, Portugal, and New Zealand used their National Olympic Committee's flags instead of international Olympic flags or their own national ones. Still, the Games were completely boycotted by amongst other countries, United States, Canada, West Germany, Japan, South Korea, Israel, Iran, China, Argentina, Chile, Norway, Turkey, Egypt, Pakistan, and many others. But, disregarding the lack of foreign athletes, the games themselves went quite well. 36 world records were broken and 74 Olympic ones. Carter's own plans didn't go so well, as a lot of the electorate apparently had wanted to see the usual USA-USSR duel for gold medals, and the irritated sports fans in the presidential elections of November 1980 elected the Republican Ronald Reagan instead. But, as important as all of that is, that's all history which you probably knew already. What you most likely had no idea of was how the games were prepared and how things happened in the background. And that was done in a truly Soviet way. The preparations started four years before the Games, and the most noticeable thing was that the emblem and the bear, Misha, or, in its full name, Mikhail Potapovich Toptygin, were everywhere, 
In every city, on every square and street, posters, memorabilia, TV, everywhere. Including an obscenely huge amount of all kinds of pens. The bear was, and still is, the most memorable and the most loved thing about the games. You can also bask in the glory of the bear, Misha, by looking at the picture accompanying this podcast on the site or in our RSS feed. The author of The Mascot was a children's book illustrator from Moscow, Viktor Chizhikov. The Mascot got approved as official by the USSR's Communistic Party's Central Committee, of course. Yes, the choice of the mascot was political, so the very highest organ of power in the, in the Soviet Union had to accept it. And, of course, they picked a bear. The bear was so prominent that it can still be found painted on a wall in some public places over here in Latvia. For one, one of our kindergartens in Riga, who renovated their building, asked specifically to get the bear back on their wall, because they loved it so much. After all, during that time, the bear was truly everywhere, and all the popular cartoons had this special episode of the Moscow Misha Bear coming in and talking with the children. He was also popular because, you see, for the first time in ages, Soviet citizens got to buy something with some stuff painted on it, other than the Uagre things, or things with communist symbols, or governmental slogans, or organizational pictures. Other than that, the Soviet-made clothing was usually plain. We didn't have any t-shirts with pictures on them, logos or snarky texts or the like. And now, we had the bear. Which was seen as something new and interesting. And the bear stuff, the quality of it was also better than that of usual clothing, as it was meant to be purchased by tourists. So, people, citizens of my, citizens of the Soviet Union, wisely figured out that they should probably purchase as much of the Misha merchandise as they possibly could get their hands on. That wasn't the only thing that got really popular, as we're still talking about clothing. We almost never saw any foreigners here, and now there were a bunch of them, strolling around Moscow. The local youth dreamt about jeans all the time, as we had almost none except some smuggled in, but at that time, seeing how the athletes tended to walk around in velvet pants, the popularity of those skyrocketed. The greatest fashion craze in the Moscow Olympics were, of course, Adidas sneakers. Many wanted to obtain them, others hated them with passion. There was a saying circulating around Moscow at the time. Tot kto nosit Adidas, zavtar rodinu pradast. And basically in translation, he who wears Adidas will sell his fatherland tomorrow. Yeah. But ignoring all the hatred, the now available sneakers were bought all the time and were worn everywhere. To parties, to work, as a part of a formal wear. You could see men in suits wearing them, and women wearing them with their evening dresses when going to the theater or something. To have a pair of these shoes was so fashionable that nobody cared how and when they technically were supposed to be worn. And when they broke down, their soles were cut off and glued under ordinary shoes. Again, because of much higher quality. The label Adidas itself wasn't thrown away either, but was carefully cut out and soon on to other clothing. This, by the way, I think, explains why the Adidas label is still so popular and worn everywhere by the so-called Russian Gopniks or Bidlo, the stereotypical Russian criminal youth. Uh, there's something like the so-called stereotypical white trash in the US, oh god, I hope I don't offend on anyone here, except they're also somewhat more criminalish. okay? <clears throat> they are famous for their squatting skills. 
Now, clothing and random tourist merchandise wasn't the only thing that had appeared in the Soviet stores at the time. We also, finally and for a limited time only, saw our food selection improve as well, as the stores now stocked things that the average Soviet citizen hadn't seen before in his lifetime. Stuff like fruit jams from Finland, salami and other dried sausages, different kinds of cheese, we, before that we just had one, even if that ever appeared and happened. Moscow Olympics also introduced us to those little juice packs with a straw in them. Beer in aluminium cans, as previously all the beer was just in bottles. Liquors that were not just vodka. Mustard that came in tubes. And mayonnaise. Yes, even mayonnaise was a rarity in Soviet stores at that time. You could even buy Coca-Cola or Fanta in a paper glass for 20 kopeiki in soda vending machines. 20 kopeiki, that's again one-fifth of the ruble. And, for a limited time only, Moscow Non-Alcoholic Drinks Factory even produced licensed Coca-Cola in cans, on which the Olympic symbols were put on. Pictures of Soviet Phantom Coca-Cola glasses from the time are also available on our website. Well, all of this happened at the important Western cities, anyway, where tourists were expected. Moscow, Leningrad, Tallinn... Maybe in Riga as well, but I haven't heard any stories. We were a bit too far from them. Most other parts of the USSR were still starving and being poor, as the product situation there hadn't improved. But hey, they had relatives, so of course everyone bought everything and sent it everywhere. To a limit, of course, as buying too much could lead to a visit from some nice uncles in the KGB. And as the Olympics were a really, really important event for the state, Every factory that produced anything tried to get the Olympic emblem and the Misha bear on its produce and had to promise to the state that they would <clears throat> take additional responsibilities. That is, produce over the amount set in the current five-year plan. Clearly, together with the Olympics, a small taste of freedom had arrived in the USSR. Interest in everything Western skyrocketed instantly. And because of that, the propaganda machine started working twice as hard. The newspapers started to warn the Soviet people, quote, about the illnesses and the provocations of the West, end quote. And the nice people of the KGB had long and serious talks with all the USSR athletes before competitions. Also, there were rumors floating around Moscow for a long time that the foreigners hide razor blades inside chewing gum, that they've brought in poisoned foodstuffs, that the Western coffee isn't coffee at all, but is instead pure poison. And, of course, that you can get such diseases from wearing jeans that you'll have to spend the rest of your life in a hospital. Also, one of the more famous tales going around the city was that some foreigner, nobody knows from where or who, and it's 100% fake, but it's funny, that some foreigner had managed to smuggle in bags of... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Fleas throughout the customs office and wanted to release them in the audience in the middle of a football match. Apparently then everyone would see Soviet citizens acting in an undignified manner. Now, most likely all of these rumors and tales were just launched by the Soviet propaganda, but one has to think a bit how did they even came up with all of this crazy crap. The combination of such western influences, scary tales, and sudden overabundance in the stores of course, caused crime to increase as well, especially in the year leading up to the Olympics. If, in the earlier days, everyone just snagged up everything that wasn't well guarded and was just left lying around, such as building materials for summer houses and the like, then, in the Olympic year, with the games coming closer and closer, a lot of the Olympic objects in Moscow suffered from thieves. For one, all the squeaky car toys promotional gifts made by the Italian company Olivetti were stolen from the Olympic Press Center in the Moscow's Park of Culture. From the Olympic warehouses, USSR's training outfits and other parts of uniform were stolen. And the craziest part is when the bike track, you know, that track they build when they have to race inside that special track thing with bikes, when that thing was being built in the Krilatsky district, It was during the construction found out that the special British-made paint for the line markings in the track had been stolen, and that about 10 square meters of the track's special cover were also cut out and stolen as well. Soviet man can steal anything. All the time. Because that's how we roll. (laughs) Of course, the USSR's government wasn't happy about this turn of events. So now we come to the really fun part. The security and order preparations for the games themselves. Some especially drastic measures were taken. Like I said, Moscow Olympics were taken very seriously. That is why, a few weeks before they began, the nice people from the Militia and the KGB rounded up all the so-called antisocial elements from the city. Like alcoholics, prostitutes, mentally ill people, most of the criminal underground of Moscow, nonconformists, and the like. That, of course, included a lot of dissidents as well. They were all sent out to the 101st kilometer from Moscow, on a road. That was a Soviet tradition. People who were rehabilitated back from the gulags weren't also allowed to live closer than 100 kilometers to the major cities for a while. You know, and all those people were just put out on the street for the duration of the games. The local organized crime bosses of Moscow, known as Vor Vzakonye, or the lawful thieves, were all just rounded up and locked in the central prison. No accusations, no trial, just picked up and locked up, with the idea being that if they would help to ensure that there would be no crime in the city during the Olympics, then they would be released as, of course, they tended to cooperate with the government as informants when it came to political dissidents. But, if something would go wrongly during the games, well then, the nice people of the KGB always have more bullets to spare. Furthermore, 
About 50% of people who lived in the center of Moscow, and many from the surrounding parts of the town as well, were given forced vacations with exclusive free passes so that they would be able to go and rest in resorts in Crimea and Sochi. Normally, you could only go to such a resort if you had a special governmental pass. There was a huge line for them, usually, and of course, there was a lot of corruption involved to get them. Instead, a lot of KGB agents from all over the country were brought in, dressed up in civilian, and put to work, weeding out any and all suspicious activities in the city. Moscow had to be emptied, because with the sudden influx of Westerners, who knows what might happen? You see, and the whole image of the USSR being a very nice and friendly place was at stake, with cameras everywhere and pesky Western journalists running around. And even those people in Moscow, who stayed there for the duration of the games, their children suddenly went to all kinds of camps all over the USSR, as the government didn't want any underage people being even near those events. The sentiment for sending your children away was also enforced by the previously mentioned Westerners bring diseases and are terrible to kids propaganda. And together with the availability of these different summer camps, like pioneers camps, sports camps, military camps, whatever, all of this worked really well. They mainly succeeded and really turned the city into an adults-only zone for the duration of the games, as children below the age of 16 were really rare on the streets at that time. Then again, Encyclopedia Britannica uh, says this about the Moscow Olympic Games. Quote, The games were also hurt by rowdy behavior from spectators, cheating by officials, and security so intrusive that, that winners in track events were physically prevented from taking victory laps. Yeah, we took our, we took our security very seriously, and apparently kind of did work. There were no terrorist incidents over there in the Moscow Olympics at least and none of those pesky children running around. But, then again, cheating by officials. <laughs> yeah, I think the venerable British encyclopedia, in this case, probably didn't employ Soviet-minded people to write their entry. As you, by this point in my podcast series, should have noticed, the Soviets cheated all the time. Controversy surrounded Soviet officials opening the stadium's gates when Soviet athletes were throwing, throwing javelins letting more wind in to aid the throws. In Finland, which had three athletes in the final, the gate issue spurred much discussion and lived on in public memory for a long time. And yeah, the Latvian athlete Dainis Kul, who won the javelin throw event in these Olympics, has basically confirmed this rumor, stating that he'd be much happier about his win if it didn't happen the way it did. Which, although not an open statement that yeah, yeah, they did it, is quite a lot like saying, yes, yes, they did it. There also were numerous incidents and accusations of Soviet officials using their authority to negate marks by opponents to the point that IAAF officials found the need to look over the Soviet officials' shoulders to try to keep the events fair. Seeing how many medals the Soviets won, and where and how the Olympics took place, I'm really sure that the accusations were pretty much based in reality. Now, I'm not saying that it was athletes' fault or that they were cheaters, bad people or bad athletes, yeah? I'm just noticing that the odds, as they say, were ever in their favor. But hey, at least the Soviet government took care of the weather. Really took care of the weather. 
The organizational committee of the games asked, well, basically the state demanded, that the meteorologists of the Soviet Union figure out the perfect time for the games. And after spending a lot of time studying the reports of the weather in Moscow in summer, reading reports from about 100 years, they determined that the highest chances of a good weather in Moscow are from mid-July to mid-August. Yes, according to official data, they studied a century worth of weather reports to calculate the time. So, the games were set to open in the 19th of July. But, of course, something again went wrong. A few days before the event, some errors in the calculations were found, and the synoptics were quite sure that it would rain that day. But a little thing like weather cannot stop the greatness of a Soviet man. They dispersed chemicals in the clouds and used helicopters to make the sky clear. And, of course, there are Soviet mythology, and tales of Siberian shamans and psychics being called in by the KGB to help clear the sky, you know, just in case. And it seemed that it would rain that day, but just a few minutes before the start of the opening ceremony, the clouds suddenly dispersed, and the weather weather suddenly turned fine. Like I said, greatness of the Soviet man, in whatever form it may take. And about the psychics and the shamans, there are a lot of stories about Soviet officials calling in calling in such people and turning to supernatural to get some greatness, although the state was profoundly atheistic. It's just that there is something about this mythological reasoning behind there, like you already believe in Marx and Lenin, so why not believe in Marx and Lenin's spirits who now embody some shaman? Of course, some of the documented cases of this happening come from private events held by some lower rank officials in the Soviet Union, such as some some rulers of, of some members of the Central Committee of Latvia, for one, or something like that. But yeah, it's actually may, it's actually much more believable than you might think, because these things did happen. Of course, the Olympics spawned a lot of political humor as well. For one, Brezhnev was, by this time, getting really old and senile. And people tended to mock his inability to understand the world around him while he's leading the biggest country in the world. Now, probably the most famous joke concerning the Olympics was... Brezhnev reads his greetings to the athletes in the Olympic Games of 1980. He reads... Oh. 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 And quickly, quickly, his his assistant runs next to him and says... Mr. Secretary, Mr. Secretary, those are not the letters O. They are the Olympic circles. The text is down there. And, of course, as the country was already in a deep economic stagnation by this point, and the war in Afghanistan was also taking its toll, people remembered our friend and comrade from the episode 1, Nikita Sergeyevich Khrushchev, and his promises. So jokes like this were also told. Khrushchev promised that we will build communism by the 1980. Yeah, instead they built the Olympics. If you recall, Khrushchev had promised in 1960 that by 1980 the USSR would live in communism. Instead, there were more shortages on everything, war, general approval of the state, more war, general disapproval of life there, even more war, and even our allies, the Chinese, had abandoned us. What fun times to be alive! One another incident to remember from these Olympics was what a Polish athlete, Vladislav Kozakiewicz, did after winning gold in pole vaulting. You see, during the competition, the crowd, 
which was mostly consisting of nice people from the KGB, were supporting Soviet jumper Konstantin Volkov. And they booed and hissed and jeered and generally disturbed Kozakievich's performance when it was his time to make the jump. And when he made his jump and had just, secure, and had just secured his gold medal, well, apparently Kozakievich made the so-called bras d'honneur, again, I'm butchering French here, gesture in defiance of the Soviet crowd in all four directions. You know, that's the one that's associated with the fuck you statement. Again, picture of Kozakievich doing this is on the page. It's kind of hard to explain rude, ge- rude gestures throughout audio format. Anyhow, this almost cost him his gold medal. Of course, he received much support in Polish society, which resented Soviet control over Eastern Europe. After the 1980 Olympics ended, the Soviet ambassador to Poland demanded that Kozakiewicz be stripped of his medal over his insult to the Soviet people. Poles, being smart people, responded, and this was the official response of the Polish government, was that Kozakiewicz's arm gesture had been an involuntary muscle spasm caused by his extortion. The internet tells me that the gesture is even now known there as Kozakiewicz's gest. Also, as the event was televised, the people over here in Latvia were quite jubilant about what he did. My father stated that they were raising beer cups in their student circles for Kozakievich's health for months after the Olympics ended. I might have a beer for Kozakievich's health this evening, even. Oh yeah, and another event happened during the Olympics. It was called Liberty Bell Classic, or unofficially, the Olympic Boycott Games which started in the United States, University of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, in the 16th of July, 1980, where the 29 countries of those boycotting the Moscow Olympics participated. And that's about it for today's show about the Moscow Olympics. Yes, I didn't talk about the events or the opening and closing ceremonies, which left a huge emotional impact for everyone because we were really happy to see that something awesome is finally happening in the Soviet Union. But it didn't matter that much. What really mattered was that the Olympics happened, we lived through them, and that was our hamburger. Our cheeseburger, to be exact, I suppose, is that those are much more popular here. But I hope that you remember my analogy which I made at the beginning of the show, saying that at the time everyone wanted a bite. Everyone wanted a burger. We got our burger for two seconds or something. And in a way, the 1980 Olympics changed the attitude of our own culture and society towards the Soviet Union. Many people who didn't have any exposure to Western culture or Western influences before got them. Our stores got fuller. We got to see how it was like to live in the West, even though for a short while only. And all the security measures too, yes, they were there, but they didn't stop people from actually noticing how different everything is when the Westerners arrive and how what their standards of life should be, and where in the world are we by that moment. We wanted that hamburger now. We had tasted it. We wanted more of it. And that's when that's when things got rough. Because a lot of people went into drinking and were really sad after all this nice period ended. Then a weird period happened after Brezhnev died in 1982, when the Olympics were still in everyone's mind. To other leaders, Chernenko and Andropov came after Brezhnev, but before Gorbachev. And that's when everything started to just crack open. 
I think that the Moscow Olympics have a certain role in the collapse of the Soviet Union because of this, all of this exposure and how the people really got into this mood and saw what was going on. And again, um, I have to apologize for this show being shorter than the other ones, but really the Moscow Olympics didn't fit in any other show, which I might do, any other themes of the show. I couldn't just stick Moscow Olympics at the end of Afghanistan, because that show was much more serious. And I don't think I could do so in the future shows either. Moscow Olympics stand alone. Now, next time, which is going to be in December, and I hope to make it before Christmas, we'll be having a Christmas special. I'll be talking about how the Christmas was celebrated or prohibited to celebrate in the Soviet Union, tell you some interesting facts, such as why we over here in Riga firmly believe that uh, firmly believe that we are the birthplace of the Christmas tree. Yes, there is actually proof of this fact. You will be amazed. And secondly, I will also want to do I also want to do some questions and answers session at the end of the next show. After that, we shall move on to Andropov and Chernenko, and I hope that by February we will have finally moved to Gorbachev's era and all the things that happened there. And then we'll take another look back on everything, because at one point I shall have to look at how the how the Soviet Union was actually made and what happened in the World War II and the er- and the early years of the Soviet Union. And at one point, I might even look even deeper in the history and look what happened in Latvia even before Soviet Union was a thing here. Thanks to everyone for listening, and until next time, do svidanie. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.